Hail Dictinus, grant us clear voices, strong sound, and good reads. Myth is what we call other people's religion. Welcome to Mythic Perspectives, the 261st episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. Our opening today is courtesy of writer Joseph Campbell. Our opening and closing music is credited as Frostwaltz Alternate by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. You may call me Ode. Mary Meet, my name is Gwyn, Ode's mother. We're going to start with our housekeeping. Convocation is next week. Yes, it is. People are very, very excited. Mm-hmm. Um, As a reminder, it runs from the 22nd to the 25th. Yep. And you can still buy tickets at the door mm-hmm. and on whatever day you choose to go. Yep. But go to convocation.org mm-hmm. uh, for check. all of the details. And everything I've seen so far, I've seen some pictures from the vendors. I've seen uh, information about the speakers mm-hmm. and the teachers. It all looks like... It's going to be a great event. Your standard, excellent convocation event. Mm-hmm. So yep. I'll be interested to hear how the new hotel is and all, all that exactly. kind of stuff. So looking forward to hearing about that. And then we are house kept. And house swept. And Gwen brought the little broom. I did. <laughs> Since the title is maybe a little difficult to parse... We are going to be talking this week about different ways you can interpret myths, right? Like different systems for interpreting and understanding mythology. Mm -hmm. Because even if you're not a pagan, even if Mm -hmm. you're um, some other form of witch or magical practitioner, Mm -hmm. you can still find value in the different Any kind of interaction you have with these myths, yeah, Mm -hmm. will be through a belief system, right? Mm -hmm. Or a a perspective system. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think about what perspective you're viewing those myths through, things can get sort of muddy and confusing. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us don't think about, like in philosophical terms, what systems we're using to, to understand or process the myths we work with. Mm-hmm. But there are systems that, that we use for that. So a lot, there are actually a lot of systems. Lots, way, lots. way more systems than you may think. They can be broadly categorized into two sort of super groups, mm-hmm. which are literalist interpretations mm-hmm. and symbolic interpretations. Mm-hmm. And your most common understanding of, of literalism mm-hmm. uh, would be found in, well, the Bible. Right. So literalism is mostly, there are different kinds of literalism, right. but the kind of, of literalism you're thinking of is single origin literalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really applies mostly to like a, a young earth creationist, yeah. uh, that kind of a, a perspective. Right. That the earth is only 6,000 years old. Right. That the stories, the mythology that's in the Bible mm-hmm. is literally true. Right. Um, the reason you mostly find single origin literalism in a limited number of mm-hmm. religious spaces mm-hmm. is because most, in fact, the overwhelming majority mm-hmm. of religions don't have single origin myths. Right. They have multi-origin myths, mm-hmm. um, myths that are told in various ways, that are highly localized, mm-hmm. that have many versions. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, so did Christianity originally. Originally, Um, yeah. Before the Council of Nicaea, is Mm -hmm, that the one? mm -hmm. Where they condensed, uh, they threw out a bunch of books and made those the Apocrypha, Mm -hmm. and they condensed the available literature into what is now the Bible. Mm -hmm. Before that, they also had multi-origin myths. Yes. But after the Council of Nicaea, where they condensed it all and canonized Mm -hmm. specific 
books and stories, they had single origin myth mostly. You can actually still find more than one like creation story mm-hmm. in Genesis. And like in even the New Testament, you've got the first three or four books of the New Testament, right, are all the story of Jesus told mm-hmm. from slightly different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And some include and the some, nativity exactly. with Some of them the have slightly men. different plot elements, right? Yes, yes. Um, slightly same. different elements of the myth. The same with the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Some include that uh, in their storytelling. Right, and some cut before then. Cut before then. So even in the Bible, there's not a true single origin myth for a lot of these stories. Mm-hmm. There are multiple origin myths. Mm-hmm. But they are often understood by modern Christians as being single origin myths. And they're they're treated that way. And one big story, mm-hmm. one non-ending from start to finish. Right. Very linear. Yes, a, a, exactly. A linear telling of a literal history. Right, right. And you you can find that in in other uh, mythologies as well. It's more I think it's more common when you've got um, a monotheistic telling of, of yeah you you don't find this kind of literalism mm-hmm. in like I said multi origin myth cultures mm-hmm. uh, as much and you don't find it it's it's the kind of thing that works best if you have a sacred text right so if you have a religion with a confirmed sacred text that doesn't vary right. It's possible to have single origin literalist interpretations of the myth because you only have that one myth to work with. And there's really not that many out there. That there really aren't. That's that actually have like sacred texts. Yeah, that that have that kind of that hyper kind of. specific like canonized sacred yeah. text. There are religions that have a sacred text, yes. a text that is sacred, mm-hmm. but not that are like defined by mm-hmm. the sacred text and in the same way that like the Bible defines Christianity mm-hmm. and to a degree the Torah defines mm-hmm. Judaism or and the Quran, the Quran defines Islam, mm-hmm. right? So the the Abrahamic religions, as yes. they are sometimes called, yes. are the, sort of the big ones that have a single origin literalist interpretation even being possible, really. But they are still myths. That's the thing that I think sometimes gets lost in translation for people who right. are literalists. Yes. Because they think of them as histories. Exactly, yeah. And there's another literalist way to interpret mythology that associates it with history, mm-hmm. which is euhemerization. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to a, a Greek guy named Euhemerus. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, <laughs> strangely enough. Uh-huh. Who was the first guy we we know of who did this, who uh, sort of reinterpreted um, the mythology of his day as histories of an ancient past. Mm -hmm. So, like, he wrote a version of the mythology where Zeus was originally, like, an ancient tribal hero who established uh, a kingdom, and that was the gods are all people from the kingdom, the, the earthly kingdom of Zeus, and then these heroic ancient figures became mythologized over time, right? That was Euhemerus's conception. Mm-hmm. So a euhemerization is when you reinterpret a myth as having at one point been literal history mm-hmm. that was mythologized and expanded post facto. You find that in more modern, modern sources with things like Robin Hood. Yes, Robin Hood, um, King Arthur, even some people we know, like we've pinned down exactly, like Alexander the Great, right? Like Alexander the Great, real dude. Yeah, very mythologized. But that has a very mythologized pop cultural sort of Mm -hmm. presence. Mm -hmm. 
So euhemerization is another literalist understanding of mythology, but it often is speculating. Uh, the, what, what distinguishes, I think, a euhemerization from uh, a King Arthur or a Robin Hood mm -hmm. is that King Arthur and Robin Hood probably, like academics say, like, these probably were based on if not one actual a, figure, then like a couple of a couple figures of who were sort of combined together, together yeah. right? Mm -hmm. What separates that from a euhemerization traditionally is that the euhemerist is taking the myth mm -hmm. and inventing a past history. I, I read about that a bit, and I think one of the additional examples of how Zeus uh, got his queen, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Hera, is the concept that maybe this heroic king or the, these heroes, right. this ancient Zeus, this ancient Zeus uh, actually uh, absorbed another kingdom, right? And took one of the the took women, a queen. took a queen yeah. from that tribe, and she became Hera, right? And, and the other goddesses became sisters, right? So, or or even the the maidens who he um, you know deflower to deflower. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a a euhemerist reading of Norse mythology as well. Mm. Um, that is the the Danish Norse mythology oh, stories that we have are euhemerized mm -hmm. um, versions of the Norse mythology we have from elsewhere in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. So like you do see this happen in various cultures. Right. But it's, it's again, it's an attempt at literalizing a mythology, mm -hmm. at making it real history. It's basically disguised history, I think is how I saw it. Yeah, sort of. Um, uh, that's, that's the... Talked about. That's how a euhemerist would perceive a myth. Yeah. A euhemerist would say that, like, this myth uh, is in code, mm -hmm. and what it's talking about is this ancient history. Yeah. But the ancient history that the euhemerist is describing is not usually one that has anthropological evidence of right. existing, right? Right. Another literalist interpretation is that a myth is a, a pre-scientific explanation for a yes. natural phenomenon, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Or it is etiological, mm -hmm. um, which means it is causative myth, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the classic example is like the Aegean Sea is mm -hmm. called that because a king named Aegeus mm -hmm. drowned in that sea. So we call it that now. Yeah. You see this described a lot in terms of like like earthquakes, like um, um, yeah. the, the generation of earthquakes is caused mm -hmm. by like in Norse mythology, by Loki struggling in his bonds uh, as he awaits Ragnarok, right? As he's being punished with having the serpent's venom dripping into his eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's supposed to cause earthquakes, right? right. So the, the theory of, or the understanding of uh, the pre-scientific literalist perspective mm -hmm. is that myths are intended to explain phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is usually sort of an uncharitable interpretation. You find oh, this... very much so, because it assumes that yeah. the ancients, the, the, the Bronze Age people mm -hmm. and, and such were, you know, that they weren't as smart as we are. Yeah. They didn't have as much understanding of the world, so they were... It was. It's kind of looked down upon as... Mythology... better than they yeah, are, Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a view that mythology is like a primitive way to understand the world, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, condescending is a condescending good word. patronizing l patronizing. that's the word i wanted mm -hmm. the concept of the myth as a pre-scientific explanation is for things is, they couldn't understand exactly for things that were beyond their comprehension so right. of course the gods must have done it um one of my favorite stories sort of to counter that is that when the norse peoples settled iceland there are no volcanoes 
in the rest of Scandinavia. The Scandinavian people had never seen a volcano. They didn't have a god for volcanoes. It wasn't part of their landscape. Mm -hmm. When they moved to Iceland, when they settled Iceland, there were volcanoes on Iceland. And this was the first time they had run into these. So there's a story about some some people going to their Gothi, to their priest, and saying, hey, what's up with that mountain that spits fire sometimes? Uh, is, are, is that a god's thing or a spirit's thing? Or what's up with that? And the Gothi's saying, no, it seems like the land just does that here. <laughs> God's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> that's, that's just a natural phenomenon. It's just a thing. It's just, just here sometimes the mountain spits fire. <laughs> because the a- ancient peoples were not fools, right? Right. No, they were um, not. They recognized the cycles of life. Exactly. And, and they, they had the same kind of curiosity mm-hmm. that we do today. Mm-hmm. They had early forms of science, right? Mm-hmm. Like early philosophers and alchemists were early scientists. Yes, they were. The, um, those who studied the stars mm-hmm. and, and those who, I mean, hell, they, they created metal. Uh, yeah. from observation of how things worked yeah um, trial and error yeah the development of yeah metal tools how to and start fire er, early medicine mm-hmm. i mean oh, God, uh, yeah. there, there are extensive manuals mm-hmm. of early medicine and so mm-hmm. like it's not that ancient peoples were idiots no or that they were or incapable less or exactly or that they were any less naturally intelligent than we are mm-hmm. or that they were incapable of making logical connections mm-hmm. and i think that particular literalist perspective mm-hmm. on mythology a lot of that hails back to like the early 20th century yes to a very narrow uh perspective yeah. on especially non-western mythology yeah that is just I think it's unworthy of us yeah, <laughs> as a society. It really is. I don't respect it. I guess. No. <laughs> There's a lot to learn from ancient mythology and from our ancestors mm-hmm. on how that on how they created things, on how they built things, mm-hmm. like Roman concrete. Yes. And, you know, on all these different <laughs> the classic things. example. You know, exactly. We need to understand that they had their way of understanding the world. They mm-hmm. interacted with the world. They lived in it. Right. You know? and, and the same way that we interact with our yeah. world, right? And learn about our world. Exactly. So if we see... And transmit information about their world. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And for them, it was, you know, uh, storytelling was mm-hmm. a good way to pass along information. Right. And, and moral uh, stories were also part of that, you know, life lessons and right. things of that that nature. So, so while I do agree that yes, there are definitely myths uh, in existence that like describe how things work or that mm-hmm. tell creation stories, right? Like there are all kinds of, uh, especially First Nations stories mm-hmm. about like why specific animals have specific colors or patterns or mm-hmm. features or like why does the squirrel have its tail and mm-hmm. y- you know these kinds of things but these are th- these are ideological mm-hmm. myths although they describe sort of the creative process of how the world came to be the way it is mm-hmm. this perspective as a as a literalist framework for understanding mythology carries with it some inherent risks of denigrating the cultures that these myths come from. So if you want to view a myth through that lens, through that perspective, I'm not saying that's like a useless way to to view a myth. You can Mm -hmm. certainly like, there are certainly myths that fit into that Mm -hmm. understanding and that structure, Mm -hmm. but you need to be very cautious, I think, of the biases you bring into it when you mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like I'm I'm thinking of like the doctrine of signatures that was used for medicine. Mm-hmm. They used what they understood about plants and herbs and berries and things 
and used the what they observed from the the way the plant looked and how it interacted with people or right right and and came to understand how they could use those things not always accurately not but always they did accurately their best. it's you know but it's it's an early like you said it's an early form it's an of early science. attempt at science yeah. yeah absolutely and for some things it's pretty accurate descriptions mm-hmm. thanks to our tiger solanox for introducing us to weavers of the web an interfaith pagan atc Aquarian Tabernacle Church organization based in Lansing, Michigan. Weavers of the Web is a public Wiccan church that aims to be family-friendly, supportive, and informative, with the goal of ensuring that no one ever need be alone in their spiritual needs. Weavers is currently raising funds for the down payment on a property, which would allow them to expand their current network of resources, including dedicated community space, a permanent home for a pagans in need pantry, and a lending library. Join them online or in person for regular events, including rituals and discussion groups at weaversoftheweb.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash weavers ATC. Hail Dictinus! Hail Dictinus! Like I said, there are a lot of frameworks for understanding a myth. Those are sort of the major literalist ones. Most Mm. of the rest of them are symbolic frameworks. Mm -hmm. So a symbolic versus a literalist framework is one where uh, the myth is understood not to be literally factual, but to have some other purpose or meaning embedded in it. Mm -hmm. Some kind of moral or teaching. Usually, not always. Not always, no. Yeah, so there are... Um, those are, I guess, the, the those are definitely big symbolic right. frameworks. So the the classic one is the moral story is the Aesop. Yes, I was just thinking the same thing. The Aesop's fable, they all have a particular... A moral message. Moral message message that they're trying to impart to the listener. If they always get it, that's questionable. Uh, Or if the the moral is a good one. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) The moral uh, framework, the moral truth framework is a lens on mythology which uh, posits that every myth has a moral truth at its center and that the purpose of the myth is to impart that moral truth to the listener. Mm -hmm. There is also the allegorical framework. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and there are two kinds of allegories here, right? There's the natural allegory and the philosophical allegory. Mm -hmm. So a natural allegory is similar to that um, pre-scientific literalist perspective. The natural allegory is a story describing a natural cycle of some kind. Mm -hmm. So like the more modern myth of... Uh, that Wiccans use a lot of there's the, the Oak, Oak King, King and the Holly, and the Holly King, King yeah. and they're fighting for dominance. Exactly. And... Um, that story is yeah. uh, you would call that a natural allegory, right? Mm-hmm. There's also the philosophical allegory, which is where the myth is an allegory for a philosophical truth of some mm-hmm. kind. So, mm-hmm. like the classic example is Zeus eating Metis. Yes. Metis meaning wisdom and gaining wisdom Mm -hmm. through that process right Mm -hmm. the allegory is understood to be not that zeus the god has literally eaten metis but that zeus the god has consumed wisdom and become wise in this process right right? so an allegory and a moral truth are sometimes related but they are not the same right right like an allegory about a, a philosophical truth doesn't necessarily mean that that like it's telling you how you should behave. Right. It just means it's trying to impart a message mm-hmm. in this coded language. Mm-hmm. Another symbolic way to understand a myth, and this one's very popular, 
is the charter myth. Are you familiar with this? I don't think so. So the idea of a charter myth, sometimes it's a lens that is applied specifically only to certain myths in a mythological structure. Mm -hmm. So it'll say that like your charter myth is usually like the creation story. The purpose of a charter myth is to establish and support social customs. So it is defined by and advances the perspectives and biases of a ruling class. Okay. So it's similar to a moral truth framework, but it's specifically about building and maintaining social ties. Like Remus and Romulus and the founding of Rome, that's a charter myth. And a way you could understand it is as advancing the supremacy of the Romans through the supremacy of Romulus and Remus, right? Or you could look at like Norse mythology again, where the reason that Asgard and the the Aesir are sort of the ruling class, the reason they're at the top of the pantheon and like adopt the Vanir in Mm -hmm. is to build this framework, this societal framework in which the ruling class can adopt in other cultures, right? And so it it advances that as a social good or a social norm for real people in the real world to replicate. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So that's what a charter myth is. It's a myth that is intended to set a societal standard that the people of the culture will then sort of reenact. Right. Not in a moral way, but in a sort of a structural way. Right. Uh, And like I said, a charter myth is not always like the whole body of a mythology. It'll Mm -hmm. often be that like specific myths inside of a mythology are charter myths that are intended to serve that function. And other myths inside the mythology may have different functions. Mm -hmm. There's also the ritualization lens. Mm -hmm. So this was a really popular sort of academic perspective for a while which was that myths were replications of or instructions for rituals. And there was a whole debate for a long time about which came first, the ritual or the myth. Right. But the theory is that a myth is, again, encoded language. You mm-hmm. find this, a, this is a very common way to understand myths through symbol, mm-hmm. um, through a symbolic lens, is that the myth is in code mm-hmm. and the lens allows you to translate it. But the ritualization lens basically is that a myth is a set of codes or instructions or is a a record of, depending on what you think came first, Mm. um, the structure of a ritual. Right. With this, you look at stuff like Hades and Persephone. Oh, yeah. And and Demeter. Mm -hmm. And they would say that like the thing, the Eleusinian... Eleusinian mysteries. Yes. So a ritualist perspective would say that the Eleusinian mysteries probably are the ritual that's attached to that myth. And that like the myth of Demeter and her search for Persephone Mm -hmm. would be the instructions that would define that ritual. Mm -hmm. And then what the actual, you know, ritual is, is lost to history. Right. But the basic But the reconstruction now. The reconstruction now is based and is built from... What we know from uh, the Eleusinian mysteries and from, from poetry and, and prayers and from the myth and from the mythology of um, of Persephone and Hades and Demeter, it, it is it's all included yeah. when in those and there's a modern group that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that is does the that. ATC. We've talked about this before, yeah. yeah. And uh, but they're they're cons- they're constructing they're what they understand, yeah. reconstructing with the basis being that mythology. Yeah. 
So that's the ritualization lens, mm-hmm. is that all myths are instructions for rituals in that way. Mm-hmm. There is the psychological archetype perspective. This is very Jungian. Yeah. And it relies on the idea that basically all myths are sort of the same myth. Built on different things. <laughs> yeah. This You get into also Joseph Campbell's monomyth. I don't like Joseph Campbell for the record. <laughs> um, and yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he had a significant impact, especially in sort of pop mythology. Yes, that's very um, true. Academic folklorists don't like Joseph Campbell very much either. Joseph Campbell liked to describe himself as a comparative mythologist or a comparative folklorist. Mm-hmm. He was not actually a trained folklorist. He was an author. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he a professor of English literature Yeah, and he who sort of stepped outside of his lane. He did. And he created a lot of philosophy and interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on these myths that have been taken as, you know, yeah, I, how it really actually works. The the issue with Joseph Campbell, and this is, you'll find a lot of academic critique about him to this effect, is that he overgeneralizes and flattens mm-hmm. myths that he's looking at in order to force them to fit his, his monomyth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to force them to fit his model, to force them to fit his honestly very Western perspective. Yeah, and that's the thing, is that when you are reading a myth, Mm-hmm. You need to read it plainly, for right. one thing, yeah. but also within the context of its culture. Yes. And its time. There's so much cultural context in mythology. Taking them out, of, <laughs> twisting a narrative in academia. No, <laughs> says Githa. Yeah. No. Uh, notoriously bad for that. The, But yeah, the, the thing with, and, and the thing that Joseph Campbell fails to do so frequently, mm-hmm. um, is to take a myth in the context of its culture and its time. Yeah. That's a that's sort of a an er lens that you can put over top of yeah. these other lenses we're talking about, right? Um, you can view a myth through different periods, right. I guess, right? Like mm-hmm. you can view the myth from your modern perspective, mm-hmm. right? A mm-hmm. modern Western perspective on this myth. That's not necessarily a useless perspective to mm-hmm. have, mm-hmm. especially a- as a pagan, right? You can um, interpret it to understand what's going on in your own life. E- exactly. And um, around in your circumstances. E- exactly. So like a, a modern Western lens is an interesting one potentially to bring to an understanding of a myth. Mm-hmm. But it is not the lens that that the myth would have been written under. Exactly. Or how it necessarily would have been interpreted by the people of that time right. when it was originally or or for that imparted. matter for that matter most of these myths have been around for a hajillion years. A hajillion years. And so you're looking at like here's here's uh, a thing that's sometimes very frustrating to me. So like you look at Homer's stories, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You look at the Odyssey. So yeah. there are a lot of myths referenced in the odyssey some of them are referenced very briefly some of them are told in full but all of them are older than homer Mm -hmm. he's telling stories that have already been around for in some cases generations and can have already been altered from their original telling so like the the version that is being passed on to us from homer is not even the original version yep right so we're seeing homer's lens on an even older myth that was written under an even older lens. Mm -hmm. So, and then, like, we're not reading, most of us in in Western spaces are not reading Homer's original literature. No, because... We're reading a translation of Homer's original literature. So we're reading the original myth 
through Homer's lens, through a translator's lens, through our lens. Mm -hmm. And there are, because sometimes the words don't translate. Yes, they don't they, translate well or fully or at all. And so they have to come up with the best words or phrases mm -hmm. that will meet the overall theme of exactly. what the sentence is trying to say. And, and then, you know, you get into especially things like the Odyssey mm -hmm. is poetry. Yeah. So the translation should have a poetic feeling, right? Mm -hmm. But a literal translation often won't have that same poetic feeling. So mm -hmm. you have different styles of translation. And mm -hmm. each of these is bringing a slightly different lens mm -hmm. to that original myth. Exactly. And then, like, as in the, the New Testament and, you know, in the Bible, yes. a lot of times the scribes were putting in their own comments. They sure were. <laughs> they sure were. Their own understanding and their own comments. They weren't necessarily translating word for word. Yeah. And a word for word or a literal translation isn't even always the best one no, anyway. No, sometimes thought for thought is mm -hmm. better. Exactly. So, so there are different schools of thought and different perspectives and different lenses to even take two translation. Mm -hmm. So like three translators will get you five different translations. So this the same concept that you have for modern mm -hmm. biblical translations or Quran, you know, the Quran or whatever. Whatever, yeah. It, it, it's the same. The Odyssey. The Odyssey. <laughs> it's the same principle from back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's an important thing to understand yeah. and to bring to any interpretation of a myth mm -hmm. is that you're not even putting your lens on the original source material most no, of the time. Whatever that is, because is probably gone. Exactly. And well, and most or of the time... Or it may have never been written down. Well, if, it, if it's passed on to us, it's been written down at some point. Yes. But in some form. Yes. Right? That's the important right. thing to note, is that the form in which it was written down may not have been its original form. Exactly. And almost none of them are written in a language we understand, because like <laughs> Githa points out, Beowulf, Beowulf is written in a form of English... Uh-huh. Not a form that the vast majority of us can read. Exactly. What was it? Uh Middle English? I think or it was something? I think it was I think it I think it was Middle English. I, I it seen, might have been old English. I it, it, yeah, I I took a literature class and I think it was the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. And they gave us the original No, you're right. I think I think Beowulf was Old English or maybe Anglo-Saxon. Could be. Um I think Canterbury Tales was Middle English. Yes. So um we had the Middle English of the Canterbury's Tales. Next to a modern translation. Yes. And the, our instructor had us try to read yes. the, the Middle English. There are like, some cow. There are some <laughs> phases of Middle English that mm -hmm. I can read. Yeah. Because I have done it a lot and I have some familiarity with mm -hmm. it now and sort of with the way the language moves. Mm -hmm. And because it is closer to modern English. But you get like into the early part of, of Middle English, and I'm completely lost yep. again. <laughs> you could even consider Shakespeare's plays, mm -hmm. uh, like of the the historical plays. Yes, yep. Are definitely, uh, you, could re you could listen to and see those performed in a mythological kind yes. of way. Yes, as a, as, as a euhemerization. Yes. Because or a reverse euhemerization, I guess. Exactly, because they're not direct histories. Mm -hmm. They're political understandings of stories exactly. being told generations later. Yeah. Elle says, even if we had the original myth of anything, it would be interesting to study, but would be a very practical application, given how different our living situation is from the people who told those myths in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I think you also have to remember that a lot of these things, this made the Shakespeare thing made me think of this, a lot of these are coming from the perspective of conquerors or yes. um, ruling parties. The ruling this parties, is, again, they're going to tell their side of the story. This is again where you get into the charter myth perspective yeah. is the understanding that most of these myths, especially the ones that were passed on to us, were mm -hmm. 
in favor of a ruling party. Exactly. Right? So, so they have those parties' biases. Yeah, and you still see that happening today. Right. <laughs> okay. There is a lens through which you can understand the myth called structuralism. Mm-hmm. And structuralism is, it addresses the gaps between in societal conflicts, right? Um, so this is sort of a almost uh, a partner to a, a charter myth. So a structuralist interpretation of a myth is like uh, the myth is supposed to bridge the gap in societal contradictions. Mm-hmm. So like the myth of Prometheus is the bridge between humanity mm-hmm. uh, and the the need for like fire and right. certain kinds of knowledge that were difficult to attain for early humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And so the paradox of rude nature of humanity versus the divine nature of fire, right? Mm -hmm. The myth of Prometheus is supposed to structurally bridge the gap between Mm -hmm. those paradoxes and bring them together into a single form that we can understand. Yep. That's a structuralist perspective on myths, is that their job is to bridge some kind of gap, some ideological gap in society or in our understanding mm-hmm. to sort of align things that don't match mm-hmm. in, in our perspectives. Yep. So that can serve both practical u- functions where it can be attached to a charter myth, right? Like a mm-hmm. structuralist perspective can be attached to a charter myth mm-hmm. where like the gap that's being bridged is a gap between the ruling class and the lower class. Mm-hmm. Um, and the purpose of the myth is to draw them together. Like the divine right of kings, right? right is mm-hmm. a structuralist myth that also serves the charter myth's purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Bridges the distance between the reality of a lower class and the desires of the upper class Mm -hmm. to rule over them, Mm -hmm. right? And then that divinity connection is what compels the lower class to permit this, right? Right. There's also more sort of esoteric lens you can apply, Mm -hmm. which is that the purpose of a myth is to apply meaning to what is unknowable. Mm -hmm. So this perspective says that the gods and divinity and the supernatural in general, are inherently unknowable forces, right? Right. They are beyond human aspect. Mm -hmm. And that the purpose of a myth is to apply a human lens, Mm -hmm. a a human layer of meaning to that unknowable thing to bring it within reach. Right. So any myth is basically the human sort of generative impulse being applied to an unknowable thing. Yeah. That's another lens you can you can apply to mythological understandings. Mm-hmm. L says, also structural, why one dynasty rules instead of another. See Amaterasu in Japan. Yes, you see that in, uh, uh, in Norse mythology as well. Various clans who are supposed to have been descended from various gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that in a lot of different uh, uh, Anything mythologies. where, yeah, there's a, where there's a divine inheritance, right. a divine right or a divine heritage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of a structuralist bridge for a charter myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then one other symbolic perspective you can apply is that the purpose of a myth is for emotional catharsis. Mm-hmm. So that the sort of the reason that myths often have the worst behaviors are often about the gods behaving very badly. Very badly. Um, and in ways that were unacceptable even at the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, committing crimes that would get you killed if, if a human did them, right? That the reason those things are so prevalent in mythology is that they provide emotional catharsis to the listener. Mm -hmm. Sort of the same way that like horror 
stories yes. provide catharsis. They allow you to experience the emotions. the emotions that are attached to this very volatile experience mm-hmm. without being in any actual danger yourself. Exactly. And then the resolution of the story brings that emotion to a sort of a clean end mm-hmm. so that you can put it away and get on with your day. Right. <laughs> Um, that's the that's the idea. That's the theory of catharsis, right? And that that's why things like horror films and dark literature mm-hmm. and things like that are compelling to the human psyche is that it allows us to experience these emotions or to engage with those experiences in ways that don't degrade society. Confront fears. Confront fears. Yep, absolutely. And confront taboos. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's the perspective in which it's very useful. That That's a very useful lens for mm-hmm. seeing, especially some of the really, the really rough myths mm-hmm. uh, about really taboo subjects, right. is that sort of purpose of that myth is to provide a catharsis, to provide mm-hmm. a an opportunity to engage with that taboo subject, and then move on from it. Right. Those are the major lenses that I found for mythology. Did you find any others? No, actually, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, because these are all the different, well, it all the different realities mm-hmm. of, of how we engage with myth and have always engaged with myth. Yes. From the very beginning. And I think, I do think it's worth pointing out that pretty much everyone is going to be applying one of these lenses. Even if they don't realize Exactly. It. Sometimes you just don't know, you just don't recognize which mm-hmm. lens you're applying mm-hmm. because it's sort of automatic. Yep. I think it's important. I, it was, John Beckett wrote about myth and how we we read and understand and process and, and use it within paganism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he said, and this is true, I'm sure somebody else has said it many, many times as well. Uh, stories can be true without being historical. Yes. So, and and wisdom can be gleaned from stories. Yes. Want to read a diverse and inclusive fantasy that's pagan friendly? Check out Arrow's Flight by M.B. Strang. Arrow's Flight, an unknown menace, moves through the polite society of Pearl's Holding. If not caught in time, it will bring down not just the hallowed knights of the Pearl Order, but also everyone who lives and works with them. The answer lies with a young woman of mysterious origins whose life has been touched by tragedy. To fulfill her potential, she must confront her past and discover a future more amazing than she'd ever imagined and find the inner strength to fly. She's not alone. A handful of knights, a hearth mage, and their magical companions all test their physical and magical limits to make things right before it's too late. Otherwise, dark forces will overtake the knights for good. Go to mbstrang.com for details on ordering your copy now. Scroll down to the bottom of the main page to sign up for the newsletter and receive a free story. Hail Dictinus! Hail Dictinus! So, time to talk about truth. Right. (laughs) So, I got deep in the weeds. Oh boy. On philosophical theories of truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get too deep into any of them. Because you need to be a philosopher to understand these. And I think that's an important thing to note, too, is that Uh way back in ancient Greece, philosophers were applying this kind of idea of truth. Well, and debates about what kinds of truth there are. Within their mythology. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, And everything. And everything. Um, Sort of the whole thing about the philosophy of truth is that they're trying to find theories of truth that apply to everything uh, in existence. And there's a lot of rationalization going on in there sometimes. Sure, yeah. There are a lot of different philosophies on it. Yep, yep. 
I'm not going to say that anyone is correct no, or incorrect. Or, or valid or, or invalid. Yeah, or no, whatever. they're they're just all philosophies that various people are exploring. So, but here are some of the, the very brief versions, like single sentence versions of philosophies that go on for a long time mm-hmm. of uh, a couple of truth theories, right? Yeah. So there's the correspondence theory of truth, which is that something which is true corresponds to a fact. Okay. So the correspondence theory is that Something is only true if it corresponds to a verifiable fact of some kind. Mm-hmm. This is a, a very sciencey perspective, right? Mm-hmm. And it's one that um, probably works best with literalism, mm-hmm. right? The correspondence theory of truth works best with a literalist perspective. Mm-hmm. It has a, my understanding, like I said, I'm not a philosopher, mm-hmm. but my understanding from my reading is that um, correspondence theory has a true-false dichotomy, right? Mm-hmm where something is either true because it corresponds to a fact or it is false because it does not correspond to a fact. Mm-hmm. And that that is the ultimate test of a truth is whether or not it corresponds to a fact. Mm-hmm. Another theory is the coherence theory, which is the idea that something is true or, or that the idea of truth is only possible inside an internally consistent system. Mm-hmm. So things can't be true just because they correspond to facts. The True things that you have identified must all be capable of coexisting in the same internally consistent system. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's also, there, and there are so many theories of truth here. I'm not going to get into all of them. These are just, I just picked out the three that made the most sense to talk about here, I think. Mm-hmm. The other one I picked up is the concept of emotional truth. Mm. This is a more recent theory. Um, and it's not as philosophically focused, been in discussion since like the 90s, which is that for a thing to be true, an emotional involvement is required, right? So mm-hmm. a thing can't be true just because it corresponds to a fact or just because it is part of an internally consistent system. A thing to be true must also have some emotional investment from the observer. Mm-hmm. There is also the a distinction between monist truth testing, which is that to determine a truth, you have to establish the truth with a single test, Mm -hmm. and pluralist truth testing, which is that uh, a truth can be determined by one or multiple of many tests. Mm -hmm. So I think it's most useful personally Mm -hmm. when reviewing mythology for truth to apply a pluralist testing perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm where truth of a myth can be determined not just by a single test, but by a variety of tests. Mm -hmm. And I think that the three testing theories that I just discussed are probably the three most useful. Mm -hmm. You can find a truth in a myth that corresponds to a fact, Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're looking at, like if we're looking at the myth of King Arthur, right? Mm -hmm. There is the truth that King Arthur, the mythological figure, probably corresponds to a ancient British warlord mm-hmm. fact, right? Or mm-hmm. hypothetical fact, mm-hmm. a potential fact. A potential fact. A fact that is disputed and currently yes. undergoing investigation, yes. right? There's also the um, coherence test for finding a truth in that myth. Is it internally consistent for King Arthur as a character, uh, as a mythological being, mm-hmm. to exist in his system? In which case we can say pretty definitively yes, because mm-hmm. he serves uh, a function in sort of a broader Camelot myth, mm-hmm. uh, an Avalon myth, mm-hmm. right? 
King Arthur is true inside the mythology of Avalon, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the emotional truth, where to be true, you have to have, for, for the thing to be true in a meaningful way, you have to have an emotional involvement with it. Mm -hmm. So does it speak to you, right? Mm -hmm. Does it um, resonate in some way? Does the story of King Arthur mean something to you emotionally? If so, then the mythology of King Arthur is satisfying the emotional truth test, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's necessary to like satisfy all of these tests mm -mm. or to, to satisfy any one specific test mm -hmm. for a myth to be true to you. Just, I think it should satisfy a test. <laughs> mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I also think it's really, what, something that was really useful for me and that I've struggled to articulate for a long time was deciding, basically, that multiple things, even and contradictory things, could be true at the same time, mm -hmm. which doesn't satisfy the coherence test, no. right? Because I will accept multiple contradictory truths. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the that's the that's why the pluralist testing is is my preferred method mm -hmm. um, because I don't have to satisfy right. all of those tests. But yeah, I believe that multiple contradictory things can be true about a single time. myth at the same time. Mm -hmm. So like the Ragnarok myth, I believe that in a practical sense, Ragnarok hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. And in a mythological sense, it has happened. And in a literal sense, it won't happen. Mm -hmm. And in a religious sense, it has to happen, right? right? So like in various... F through various lenses, I believe different things about Ragnarok, but I believe them all at the same time. Right, and then because it's a hard they're because concept. they're all right because yeah. and and I guess it's because they're those beliefs are all serving different functions. I also think it's because there is you know from the monotheistic religions there there's this concept that a lot of us are coming out of. A lot of us are coming out of that one thing has to be true. Mm -hmm. it, it can't all be true. It has to be one thing. There is one solitary truth. Yes, yeah. exactly. And it is irrefutably and true. And it is irrefutably true. Whereas in paganism, mm -hmm. as you just beautifully illustrated, uh, multiple things can be true at the same time. Yeah. And we find them in many myths. Yes. And, and like I said, those truths are tested in mm -hmm. different ways, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't believe in a a correspondence truth between Ragnarok and reality, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I might believe in a euhemerist correspondence mm -hmm. between Ragnarok and the past. Yeah. Because, like, we know there was a mini ice age at one point that really fucked with the environment, and Ragnarok talks a lot about... The Ragnarok myth talks a lot about the environment changing and becoming hostile to life. And that would match with this past mini ice age happening, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I can see, I, I can build a correspondence euhemerist truth, but not a correspondence future truth. Right. Right? So, like, the even the tests apply only through specific lenses. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, it's like um, the goddess Hera. She was the queen of the gods, mm -hmm. but yet her mythology is, you know, portrays her as this... At least what we still have. At least yeah. what we still have is this jealous, rageful... Very uh, petty. <laughs> very petty individual, mm -hmm. right? Yet she was worshipped and loved and prayed to 
by women right, through, all over the place. Greece. Through Greece. Um, and the other thing is to remember, again, that we're seeing Hera through a very Western modern exactly, lens. Exactly. Exactly. And when you think about it, she was, uh, you know, she was goddess of marriage. She was the goddess of women and childbirth, as mm-hmm. many of them were. Um, and so you would think that based on some of her stories, she it would not be one of the ones that you would want to go to for uh, childbirth because one in one of her stories she essentially made it so that one you know one of the lovers mm-hmm. of Zeus uh, was in child labor right, for constantly. forever constantly but you also have to remember you know back in the day childbirth was very dangerous mm-hmm. and so I think these things were reflected in the various mythologies that that people had and, she, and the the maiden was given relief finally by another you know deity right sure um, so I think these things do reflect. A kind of truth. Each myth contains multiple, multiple layers truths. of truth yeah. through multiple lenses. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, um, I personally believe that that uh, it was informed by the experiences of people in the day, as well as, you know, it, it could be taken multiple ways and understood multiple Right, I mean, ways. to me, that myth is a horror story, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. Like I said, the same. Absolutely. But I, I don't think she literally did these things because I'm not going to read mythology literally. Right. Yeah. I think there's symbolism in there. I think there's experience of, of people of the day in there. I think there's multiple layers to all the various stories we have of I, Zeus and Hera and right. all of them. I also do want to say that, like, I do sometimes believe that the myth literally happened, but not on Earth. On a plane that we understand. Yeah. So, like, I would say, like, the the Norse stories mm-hmm. did not happen literally on Earth, mm-hmm. right? Like, Sol and Mani are not literally human children who were mm-hmm. thrown up into the sky and transformed into the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. But on a mythological plane of existence, mm-hmm. Sol and Mani are... Yes. Mythologically human children who were mythologically thrown into the sky and became the sun and the moon. And I would say the same thing about Hakati or Hera yeah. or any of the like, other deities. Do, that I do I believe that the earth is made literally out of the corpse of Ymir? No. no. Do I believe that the mythologically literal corpse of Ymir is the earth? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, and as you were saying, both of these truths can be true. So, like, I think the, the thing with literalism. Um, and the struggle with literalism, right, mm-hmm. is that it tends to dispute facts. Yeah. I'm not interested in disputing no. facts. Mm-mm. The facts are that the earth is made out of various stones, mm-hmm. right? You know, we got the core and the mantle, and actually we don't know that much about the core and the mantle. We actually can't get down. A lot of that's theoretical still, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, th- I find very fun. But, like, no, the... The Earth isn't literally the body of a dead cosmic giant, Mm -hmm. but it is mythologically the corpse of a dead cosmic giant. Right, right. And also, like, at the same time, Ymir is still alive Mm -hmm. and dead. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, holding these truths in your head at the same time is, it it can be challenging. Mm -hmm. It is possible. I do it all the time. I don't know how to explain how to do it other than to say, like, you Mm -hmm. just have to be able to accept plural truths. Mm -hmm. And I think it all depends, you know, it all comes down to what is right for you. Right, because this... This perspective, my perspective, the plural truths perspective mm-hmm. may not be right for you. Exactly. Um, and I do want to be clear that like none of these lenses through which you can view a myth are mm-hmm. like wrong. 
Exactly. Lenses. I would say that a literalist perspective that has you denying facts is not practical Mm -hmm. or useful Mm -hmm. as a lens through which to interpret mythology. But it's not like a a wrong perspective. Mm -hmm. Because all perspective on myth is personal. Mm -hmm. It like it's a personal relationship to a societal story. Exactly. Well, and I'm I'm gonna go back to the concept of of correspondences in magic. Right. These are things that, you know, you have an apple and Mm -hmm. it corresponds to healing and to um or fertility. Fertility and all these different things. And it is a symbol of many myths mm-hmm. and course and it corresponds across the world across the world that are are different myths but have these things in common and so they a- correspond except your individual correspondences exactly may be completely different completely from... different which is why you know you can go to a, a correspondence book and yeah. for magic and you see these various deities and they you see all these different times of day times and of planets day and things like and... that and um while it there is a a truth to mm-hmm. be found in all of that, you know. Yeah. You also can find your own perspective and understanding. Yeah. And you can find, you can often find the mythology or the myths that uh, help to define the correspondences for these different deities yeah. or these different objects. Well, like I've talked before about like my favorite way to learn about a stone, mm-hmm. about the correspondence and the relationship I will have to a stone is not to go to a correspondence book. Yeah. I go to mineral database. There you go. I go to min- Dat.org, and I read about the physical properties of the stone mm-hmm. and like where in the world it's usually found mm-hmm. and how it is used in modern jewelry and practical applications mm-hmm. and things like that. And from there, I build out my understanding of a stone, yeah. right? Yeah. So like my personal correspondences with stones are likely to be completely different mm-hmm. from like the the standard stone correspondences you're going to find in in your average pagan book. Right. And I bring up the idea, this concept of correspondences, ones that you find in mythology, Mm -hmm. ones that you find in a book with the various different ones, ones that you come up with on your own, is a way to, even if you are not a pagan, you're you're a witch, um, there are ways to understand. You're still going to use these lenses. You're still going to use these lenses and you're still going to, you can still glean things from the various mythologies mm-hmm. uh, to as a part of your practice. I think also people who like are not religiously invested in mythology mm-hmm. underestimate how much mythology they encounter in their life. Oh gosh. There is yeah. so much mythology so much mythology in your life. Um, it's like superstitions. They're yeah, everywhere. <laughs> exactly. Like if you actually it start, informs a lot of our society. It really does. If you actually start paying attention, you're gonna notice a lot more yeah. mythology There's in a, in your world. Yes. Than you are necessarily conscious. There are so many concepts and ideas and that are just uh, transmitted through culture. Exactly. It's transmitted through culture because of myth. Yeah. Yeah. So and it just you just absorb it and it becomes part of your daily life. Yeah, and you just you just build off of it without even realizing yeah. that's the foundation you're using. Which is why it's fascinating to understand where these concepts yes. come from yeah. and how you can personally build upon them in your practice. And in your belief structure yeah, and whatever because, it is you 
want to do. Because what we've been talking about here are mostly like academic perspectives. Yeah. But like I said, you're using one of these lenses. You're just not framing it in an academic way. Exactly. But if you frame it in an academic way, you can sort of analyze more thoughtfully, I think. And it can help you understand your own progress on your path, whether it is a spiritual path or a magical path or whatever or whatever it you can use these things to understand where you're going and how you're getting there and how you tend to relate to things right because whether you when you're looking at a myth it says something about you i think or about how you operate how your mind is designed whether your instinct is to look at it from a ritualization perspective Mm -hmm. or a structuralism perspective Mm -hmm. right like those say different things about your priorities mm-hmm. and about your focus and about where you tend to find meaning. Mm-hmm. So I think it's useful to to interrogate what perspective you bring to a myth and, mm-hmm. and why you bring that perspective. And I think it's important also when you're looking at, like I brought up the myth about Hera, which is a very difficult myth, mm-hmm. um, as many of hers and other deities uh-huh, are. Oh, yeah, all, all across all the world. All across the world, their, their, their mythologies can be different or, or difficult, rather. But... You can, through understanding them, absorbing them, seeing what what the truth... Processing them. Processing them and seeing what is in there. Mm -hmm. What does it say to you? That, you know, there's value in all of that. Right. I will also say sometimes you're not going to... And sometimes you're not going to (laughs) know. Sure. But I would say sometimes you're not going to have success assessing a myth unless you have a relationship with the deity involved. Like, I have no relationship with Hera. So Hera's mythology to me is completely opaque. Well, yeah. And (laughs) the point is, if if it doesn't apply to you or, or interest you... You don't have to read it or understand it. That's the emotional truth part. Yeah. (laughs) The emotional truth test, right? Like, I have no connection to Hera. So Hera's mythology to me is mostly just scary stories. Mm -hmm. Um, That, like, I, they don't compel me. And I, like, even when I try to dig deeper into them, I can't find those layers because I just don't know Hera. But there's, uh, from a perspective of someone who is working with Hera, yes, they're uncomfortable stories. There are just some things I just don't get, you know? At least yet. Yet. I will also say, if you don't understand a myth immediately, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean you'll never understand exactly. it. Exactly. And you'll you'll find the perspective of what does it mean, how, do you, how can you interpret it mm-hmm. so that you can move forward in spite of it. Right. Or embracing it. Or embracing right? it. Right? Sometimes your understanding of a myth will, will change how you feel about the myth. I don't know. Exactly. There are a lot of ways to, to approach this thing. I just yeah. want to challenge you to... Use various lenses, I guess, yep. through which to look at, at at the myths you deal with. Yep. And maybe be a little more cognizant of mm-hmm. how you're already using myth in your yes. life. And and the perspectives you're using those mm-hmm. myths through. Because yep. that's almost more important than the myths themselves. Yep. How are you observing your world, right. basically? Yeah. And what, interacting in it. What processing are you using? Yep. Is that everything? I think that's it. Okay. Then you can find us on Google. Or the search engine of your choice. If you search the number three and the letters P-A-A-C are the number three in the words pagans and a cat. You can also find us online at the number three pagansandacat.com where you can find links to the things we do, mm-hmm. including our Patreon where you can help support us, which we appreciate very much. Mm-hmm. And Gwyn's uh, Patheos Pagan blog, which is currently archived. A red bubble that exists. And you can also join us on our Facebook groups and our Discord server. That's right. That's right. So thank you for um, listening. And always, as always, thank you for being part of the three-pack pride. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And we love you, and we hope you have a good week. Yep. Or um, two weeks. Two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. Bye.